to take your Bibles and turn with me to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Today we're going to be looking at a portion of Revelation chapter 2. If you'd like to use the Red Bibles, uh, you'll find our passage on page 1028 and 1029. Continuing on in our study of this letter that was written to God's people in the first century. It has so much to say to us today as well. And last time, a couple of weeks ago... Uh, We looked at Jesus' words to a specific church in the city of Ephesus. And today we're looking at Jesus' words to a different church, uh, not too far away, uh, in the city that was referred to as Smyrna. So I'm going to read to you from chapter 2, verses 8, down through verse 11. Again, this is Jesus speaking. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are our synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for recording in your sovereign way these words that you spoke to your people through Jesus, through an angel, through John. And we are thankful that we have them in front of us today. We pray that you would teach us through the work of that same Holy Spirit wonderful things, things that would cause us to be filled with hope and peace and be reminded of your grace and love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, wouldn't it be interesting if we knew how God's people responded when they got this letter. And in particular, wouldn't it be really interesting to know how the leaders of this church and even the pastor of this church responded when they received these words from Jesus? Well, thankfully, church history actually gives us details of exactly that. Various church history sources tell us about a man named Polycarp. Polycarp lived in the mid-first century to the mid-second century. He was one of the best-known early Christian martyrs. And when he was in his early to mid-twenties, he was in this church in Smyrna, In fact, he was being groomed by John to be an eventual leader of this church. Indeed, even the pastor of this church. 
And it's very possible that given the time of when this letter of Revelation was written and when it would have been, when it would have arrived in Smyrna and to the church, that it's possible that even Polycarp himself was the one reading these words to the believers, to the brothers and sisters in Christ in that church in the late first century. Polycarp lived a life of faithful service service to his Savior and to the church in Smyrna. Eventually he became the pastor, the bishop of that church. We know from church history that toward the end of the first century, as this letter was being written, and then on into the beginning part of the second century, there was a great increase in the persecution of Christians. Not only in terms of the vastness of it, but the intensity of it. And we're told in church history that when Polycarp was 86 years old, the Roman authorities came looking for him, knowing that he was the pastor and bishop of that church. Polycarp was staying in a farmhouse that someone had allowed him to stay in just outside the city. And we're told that in February of 155 AD, the authorities went to that farmhouse to arrest Polycarp. When they arrived, Polycarp didn't flee. In fact, he actually invited the Roman authorities into his home, into the farmhouse, and offered to feed them before they took him away. They eventually led him back to Smyrna to stand trial. He was convicted and he was sentenced to death. A couple of weeks later, later in February, he was led to the amphitheater in the city of Smyrna where he was to be executed in front of thousands. The Roman proconsul, the the, the governing official that was presiding over the execution, pleaded with Polycarp. You don't have to die this way, he told him. All you have to do is forsake Christ. Give up your confession of Christ as your Savior, as God Almighty. And pledge your allegiance to Caesar, to the Roman Emperor, and worship him. In fact, the proconsul pleaded with Polycarp over and over again. At one point he said to him, the wild beasts are ready. If you refuse to swear by Caesar, you will be thrown to them. Polycarp is recorded as saying, bid them be brought. The proconsul again interacted with him and says, as you and said, as you despise wild beasts, I give you one last opportunity to change your mind, else I shall destroy you by fire. And then we have Polycarp's very famous response. Eighty and six years I have served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. I bless you, my Father in heaven, for judging me worthy of this hour so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. They then 
began to fasten Polycarp to the stake with the wood around him that would burn. And as they began to take his arms and fasten him to the stake, he actually stopped them and said, there's no need to fasten my arms. I voluntarily go and die for my Savior. The fire was lit. However, it was a windy day. And the fire was not able to accomplish its intended purpose quickly. And so he dealt with the flames for some time. Eventually a soldier, perhaps taking pity on him, went up and took his sword and pierced his heart and killed him. Now I wonder if you, like me, have the thought, what what empowers a person to respond in the midst of that kind of suffering and tribulation? Perhaps... These words from Jesus were still ringing in that 86-year-old man's ears. I wonder how we would respond, how we would do in that situation. Few, if any of us, by God's mercy, will have to experience that kind of tribulation in our lifetime. But you do know that there are Christians that even today, today, around the world, who are dealing with even these kinds of threats and tribulations. Secular human rights experts say that there are some 200 million Christians worldwide who are being denied basic human rights simply because of their faith in Christ. In 2014, 165,000 people were recorded killed because of their faith in Jesus. Even just within this past year, we've heard the stories of the early reign church in China, their pastor, their elders, their leaders, and even their members being detained and imprisoned because of their faith in Christ. Since Jesus has died on the cross, it is estimated that around 43 million Christians have been martyred for their faith in Christ. And some of them, no doubt, came from this church in Smyrna. This church was in a very significant city. It was a significant city in all of Asia Minor, which today actually is the city of Izmir, Turkey. You can go to this actual place. It's about 35 miles north of Ephesus and during this time had about 200,000 people. It's a beautiful city right on the Aegean coast with this incredible harbor. And during the time that this was written, it was a, the, the town, the city had a thriving economy. But it also was known for its emphasis on the arts and for culture. It's the reputed birthplace of Homer. It had the largest outdoor theater in all of Asia. It had magnificent architecture. The, the city had been destroyed around 600 B.C. in a war. And several hundred years later, Alexander the Great came and rebuilt the city of Smyrna. And much of the city was built on the hills leading down to the Aegean Sea. And it was referred to as you would look up and you would see these buildings kind of in a semicircle. The crown of Smyrna. Which brings us interesting irony as we listen to what Jesus says about the crown of life in this passage. This city had strong ties and was a strong supporter with the Roman Empire. The worship of the emperor was significant in the life of this city. It controlled much of what happened in the city, and there were lots of temples as a result. 
And that's significant as we read these verses here today, because in that city there was a strong Jewish community. Because of the strong allegiance that the Jewish committee in the past had had with the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire had given permission for the Jews to not have to worship Caesar and to have permission to worship God. For decades, Christians had enjoyed that same freedom because they were seen as being an offshoot of that Jewish community. They were under the umbrella of the Jewish protection. But as this letter was written, and certainly going into the second century, things changed. Toward the end of the first century, the Jews began to distance themselves from the Christians. And they made sure that the Roman Empire knew that these Christians were not Jews, even claiming that they were upsetting the peace of the city and refusing to honor Caesar so that we are told that they were being slandered or blasphemed, lied against by these Jews to the Roman Empire. And as a result, they were experiencing incredible persecution. I think we should give thanks to the Lord that that hasn't been exactly our experience here in the United States. But I want to suggest to you, as I hope that you already know, that things are changing here too. More opposition is coming for sure. It is going to become more and more costly for us to be followers of Jesus even here in this country. And that shouldn't surprise us because Jesus said it would be the case. But even though we haven't experienced the kinds of things that Polycarp or these brothers and sisters in Christ around the world have experienced, we still deal with our own tribulations. That word tribulation that is there in verse 9 uh, literally means to be pressed. It has the idea of being in a wine press or a vice and being squeezed and pressed And we have those experiences, those things that are pressing in around us. Troubles, distress, hard circumstances, suffering, affliction. Perhaps there are some here that experience loneliness because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not able to have the kinds of friends and family that they would desire. Some in this room, no doubt, have experienced failing to get promotions or being able to move up in their professional ladder because of an unwillingness to do unethical or unbiblical things. Some in this room, no doubt, are staying in difficult marriages with spouses who don't love them well because they believe that to do otherwise would not be honoring to the Lord. There are many in our family who endure incredible pain and suffering in their bodies without giving up without blaming the Lord, without walking away from trusting and having their faith in Christ. There are those who are enduring incredible pain and suffering in their minds without giving up, without blaming the Lord, and without walking away from trusting and having their faith in Christ. There are those in our midst who have a particular sensitivity to the Bible's teaching about the importance of the least of these. Widows and orphans, the poor, the hurting, the oppressed... And, and, and you feel the weight of that in your heart regularly and it is something that weighs you down. We all experience and have trials and tribulations in our lives. And Jesus wrote this letter to a group of people, Christians in Smyrna, and to us, this personal letter that came through John, and there were no rebukes in this letter. 
No criticisms, simply encouragement and hope and motivation. Jesus was telling them and he's telling us, keep going. Don't give up. Endure through all that you are called to endure through, no matter how bad it gets, because the end is worth it. Now, what does Jesus tell them to give them the tools to do that, to encourage them and to fill them with hope? Well, the first thing that he tells them is that he knows. Did you see that? He's what he says right at the beginning of verse 9. I know. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know the fact that you're being slandered. I know that you are enduring imprisonment for me. I know that you may even have to go to your death on my behalf. And remember, the word know in the Bible means an intimate, close-up awareness. He knows And how does he know? Well, it's interesting. Each of these letters that we're looking at uh, in chapters 2 and 3 begin by reminding the church that is being written to with some particular part of the vision that John got in chapter 1 of Jesus that we looked at several weeks ago. And in this letter, in verse 8, Jesus reminds them that he is the one who is the first and the last who died and came to life. He is the one who knows what is going on. The one who knows what they're going through. Because he is the sovereign, ruling, and reigning Lord God Almighty. He always has been. He always will be. He is sovereign over time and history. Even the very smallest details of our lives. He is the one who has faced death itself and conquered it by coming back to life. He is the one, as we heard in chapter 1, who holds the keys of death and Hades in His hands. They are in His power. He is the one who is all-powerful to save and to protect and to preserve His people. And He knows what they're going through. What does He know? Well, He knows the kinds of suffering they are experiencing. Tribulation, that pressure, that being squeezed, the hardships that are pressing all around them. He knows the poverty they are experiencing. Even though they are rich spiritually, they, they are facing physical poverty in the city of Smyrna. In the midst of one of the wealthiest cities in the world at the time, the Roman Empire was making sure that life was hard for Christians. Many lost their jobs because of their faith in Christ. Many had businesses that were suffering. Many were being locked out of opportunities of prosperity and flourishing simply because they had faith in Christ. And as a result, they were dealing with incredible poverty. And on top of that, they were being slandered. They were being lied against. They were having evil spoken against them. The Jews and others said false things about them to get them in trouble. And some of them were going to be thrown into prison And just a reminder that first century prisons probably were not much like what our prisons are today, which still themselves are not places that we would want to be. And many times in that culture, imprisonment was the necessary precursor to execution. And that's why he says, even unto death, 
It may be that you're going to your death for the name of Christ. He knows. He knows what they are suffering. And he knows the agents of that suffering as well. They are being slandered by those who say that they are Jews. Who say that they are God's people. But Jesus says they're not really God's people. They're actually tools of even Satan himself. They are a synagogue of Satan. It's the devil who's about to throw you into prison, Jesus tells them. He knows. He knows the suffering they are going through and he knows the agents of that suffering. He knows. He has this intimate, personal, up-close awareness of, the, of what they are going through and of them themselves. And it's meant to comfort those who are going through suffering. Even if nobody else in the entire world knows what you are going through, Jesus does. And not only does he just know it in some kind of abstract way, he himself experienced tribulations and poverty and slander and imprisonment and even death. He knows, he understands. The sovereign, ruling, reigning Lord God Almighty knows and he cares for you. When we're being slandered and lied about, when our faith in Christ is causing us to be isolated and lonely, when we're suffering in silence and darkness, be encouraged. Jesus knows. You are not alone. There's another help that Jesus gives them here as he reminds them not only that he knows, but he tells them that there is purpose to their suffering. Look at verse 10. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. The Bible tells us a bit about this devil. We're told that his intention and his purpose in existence is to discourage and to disarm and to deceive and to defeat and to destroy God's people. He is the father of lies. And if he was in control of this world, he would bring all of these things that Jesus is mentioning that they are going through to defeat and to destroy them, and he would succeed. But he's not in control. He has his own intentions, but God has greater purposes. God is at work. Satan may try to destroy them through tribulations and suffering and struggles, but the sovereign, risen, ruling, reigning Savior is in control regardless of how we feel. What is a test? Jesus reminds them that they're going to be thrown into prison, that they might be tested. What is a test? The Bible tells us that tests are something that we go through to refine us, to shape us, to purge us of what is... Uh, bad in us, to purify us, to strengthen us. Uh, tests are things that we go through that are designed to fill us with an even stronger and greater faith and trust and hope and joy. You don't have to take my word for it. Listen to four different people in Scripture speak about tests and trials and tribulations. James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you, meet various, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Peter, 
And 1 Peter 1 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul in Romans chapter 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Joseph in Genesis chapter 50 As he was reflecting with his brothers who had sold him into slavery and into a difficult life in some ways in Egypt. He said to his brothers, do not fear for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Over and over and over again, the Bible tells us that we are tested, we are given tests in our lives, then they are meant to produce steadfastness in us, to produce character and to produce hope, to produce a greater faith that we would be drawn closer and closer to our Heavenly Father. And that reality doesn't make our tribulations and our suffering and our hardships easy or fun or enjoyable. But in the midst of them, we should be encouraged and filled with hope and strength. God is at work even through our tribulations. It was Paul who said in 2 Corinthians 4 that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. So we do not lose hope, Paul says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. God is at work. We might face affliction, but we will not be crushed. We might be perplexed and confused and not understand what we are going through, but He will not let us be driven to despair. We might be persecuted for our faith in Christ, but He will never leave us or forsake us. We might be struck down emotionally, spiritually, but we will not be overcome ultimately and destroyed. And Paul says this almost difficult thing to understand, what we go through now is light and momentary. And he says that, and I mentioned that to you, not to make light of the struggles that many of you are going through, even in this room at this very moment. But the reason why Paul can say that is because his perspective is not on himself. His perspective of what he is dealing with and what he is going through is on what is coming. And he knows that God is at work. And he knows that God, he, he, God, he knows that God loves him. And he knows that God cares for him. And he knows that even the suffering and tribulations and difficulties that he's facing in this moment are preparing him for an eternal weight of glory.
There's a third thing here that Jesus gives them as a tool. Not only that He knows what they're going through, that He knows them and that He knows what they're going through. Not only that there's purpose in the midst of their suffering, but there's also a third thing here and that He tells them that, there, that there's an end to their suffering. The end of verse 10, He says, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. There is a wonderful help and encouragement here as as Jesus finishes this letter to this church in Smyrna with these people who are dealing with all of these tribulations. And he tells them that there is hope now. That their suffering now is only for a time. It's interesting that he says that it would only be for ten days. Only ten days will you suffer these tribulations. Most of the commentators believe and agree that this is almost certainly an allusion to Daniel chapter 1. John, many times in Revelation, points back to the book of Daniel. And here he's most likely thinking about Daniel 1, where Daniel and his three friends went before the authorities, the pagan authorities, and said, put us to the test. Give us a certain kind of food that's different from those that you feed your, uh, your men and see how God sustains us. Let us eat this very uh, small diet of vegetables and fruits for 10 days and then come and look and see what we're like. And it's almost certain that John is referring back to that as an illusion. And here's the point that is being made. The suffering, the tribulation, it comes to an end. Now, it's probably the case that John's not and Jesus is not referring to a literal 10 days here when he's speaking to these people. But he's using it as a symbol. It's symbolic that there's a limit. It's 10 days, not 11. There will come an end to your suffering. It will not be forever. It is not indefinite. God knows its duration and he won't let it go beyond what serves his purposes and brings about our good. And that's meant to encourage us to keep going. What we're going through is coming to an end. And not only that, not only is there hope for us in the midst of that suffering and difficulty that we're experiencing now, but there's also hope for the future. He says, as you persevere to the end, I will give you the crown of life. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. In Revelation, the crown of life refers to eternal life, the reward that is given to God's people at the end of their race. Again, irony there, in contrast to the crown of Smyrna. These wonderful, beautiful buildings around the city that were thought of as being this this wonderful hallmark of this city as the people looked around and celebrated the, the crown of Smyrna. Jesus is saying, oh, there's something so much better awaiting you. In Christ, there is the crown of life. Tribulations will come to an end. And what is waiting for you so far outweighs what you experience in this life. He also encourages them with hope for the future, not just about the crown of life, but he mentions that they won't be hurt by the second death. That's another name that is used for hell, for eternal separation from Christ. Every human being, until Christ returns, will experience a first death. But those who are in Christ Jesus won't have to go through the second death, a spiritual death. Because death 
for the Christian cannot hurt us. Physical death simply becomes a means to the end of being with Jesus face to face. And Jesus says, keep going. Don't give up. Don't give in. Even if you have to give your life. Even if your trials and tribulations don't end until your life does. Keep going because the crown of life awaits and there's no longer any threat of hell for you. I think there is a reminder here that this is a call. This is supposed to be encouraging, but there's also a call here. It's a call for us to keep going. There's a call for us to persevere. For it's, as Jesus says, those who are faithful unto death, those who conquer, that get the crown of life. It's encouraging to us, the Bible says, that it's not based solely on our own strength, our own power and ability. It's God at work in us and through us to keep us. But the Bible does say that we are called to work hard in this life and to keep going and to be faithful to our Savior until the end. I would just suggest to you this morning that the main way that we do that is by making use of the tools that God has given to us. One of those tools is just simply even this letter to to be reminded of what Jesus said to this church who is dealing with perhaps similar things or tribulations that we experience as well. But there are other tools that he's given to us. It's making use of the normal, ordinary means of grace, being in God's word, spending time in prayer, celebrating the Lord's Supper and baptism, worshiping together with God's people. It's participating in the fellowship of the church, the mutual encouragement and help that we have for one another. That's one of the tools that God gives us to persevere to the end. Just very quickly, I'm going to give you a quick anecdote. I have a number of friends who were professing believers in Christ that over the course of their lives decide to give it up and to walk away from the faith. And as I was reflecting on that this past week as they gave in because the the tribulations, the trials, the suffering that they were experiencing were too great. And so they said, I'm going to curse God and walk away from it and find other ways of mediating and helping my pain. And as I thought about those friends of mine that have done that over the course of many years, I realized that there's something that they all have in common, even though many of them didn't know each other. And that's this. Almost every single one of them isolated themselves from the fellowship of God's people and the means of grace that God gives us. Don't isolate yourself. Don't isolate yourself from the very tools that God gives us to strengthen us and encourage us and fill us with hope and with peace. Because those are the things that he uses to help us to persevere and endure. So here are the tools, here are the resources that Jesus gives Christians in Smyrna and in Rochester to use and to believe, to help us to keep going, to persevere, to endure through tribulations and suffering. Jesus knows you and knows what you're going through and there's purpose in your tribulations and there is an end to your tribulations. Some of you know that uh, about a week and a half ago I injured my back. Uh, It's something that I've had to deal with uh, off and on for most of my adult life. Both my father and my grandfather also dealt with it and so I've pretty much come to the conclusion that I'm going to have some form of back issues uh, throughout the rest of my life. It doesn't happen very often but when it does it's usually pretty notable. 
This time it kept me from going with my family to a family reunion in Indiana. It kept me out of the gym for a week. Uh, It kept me from being able to mow my yard and uh, making my neighbors look a little bit askance uh, as they drive into their driveways each day. And it always, whenever it happens, it always forces me to slow down. It always forces me to be more dependent on others. It forces me out of the normal routine of my life. And it forces me to to slow down and have a better focus of the bigger picture of life. And I'm sure that that's good. Now, I'm not suggesting that my occasional back issues are the same as the tribulations and persecutions and poverty and imprisonment and even the death for the sake of Jesus that the people in the first century were dealing with or Christians in this world are dealing with. And I'm also not suggesting that my back issues are the same as the trials that many in our church family have to face regularly, even daily. But I do think there is a similarity. Our tribulations, whether great or small, are opportunities for us to slow down. They're opportunities for us to stop the normal rhythm and routine of our lives and to see the bigger picture that God wants us to see. To get perspective on what is happening and why. Even though they are never fun or easy or enjoyable in the moment, Jesus reminds us today that we need to keep going. We need to persevere. And He encourages us and fills us with hope and strength to do that as He reminds us that He knows us and He knows what we are going through. And that He is the sovereign, ruling, reigning Lord God Almighty. That there is purpose in what we are going through in this life. Even though it may be very difficult and hard, we may not understand, we know that God is at work. And He encourages us with the truth. That it doesn't go on forever. There's an end to our suffering. And what awaits far outweighs anything that we might be called to go through in this life. Let's pray together. Father, as we look around this room, we can see the faces of many of our brothers and sisters in Christ that we know in the course of their lives or even in this very moment are experiencing incredible pain and suffering and tribulation in their own lives and their families. And Father, we feel that. We we feel the burden of one another. And we would be undone and overwhelmed if it were not for your grace and mercy. So we are thankful that you preserve us. And we pray that you would help us to have the strength to keep going. Give us the ability to believe your truth and the promises of the gospel in those moments when we are most tempted to disbelieve them. Help us, we pray. Give us strength this week in the midst of all that we experience. Not simply that we might endure, but that we might endure with all hope. And even with joy that passes understanding. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 26 says that as Jesus and the disciples were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. 
And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Uh, As we come to the Lord's Supper, it's another reminder to us that our Savior was acquainted with tribulation. When he said to the church in Smyrna, I know your tribulation, that was not only a statement about Jesus' omniscience, the fact that Jesus is all-knowing. Certainly that's the case. But when Jesus said to his people in Smyrna, I know what you are going through, I know your tribulation, it was also a statement of his compassion and his empathy. And when we participate in the Lord's Supper... We are proclaiming the Lord's death on the cross to pay for the sins of His people. We're also proclaiming that we are trusting and resting in Him more than anything else in our lives. I love Malt B. Babcock's hymn from about 118 years ago called This Is My Father's World. And that last verse of that hymn Begins this way. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This Lord's Supper is an opportunity for us to proclaim this. That we come as people who need God's provision for us in Christ. We are sinners and we need forgiveness of our sins. We need Christ's righteousness credited to our account. And as we come to this table, that is part of what we proclaim. We proclaim the body and the blood of Jesus Christ given for us that we might have our sins taken away forever. But we're also proclaiming our trust and our belief in our God. And so I would ask you this morning, is that you? Is that your proclamation today as we come to the Lord's table? Are you proclaiming your need for cleansing and that there's only one way to get it and that's through Jesus' body and blood given for you? Are you proclaiming your desire to put your trust and your hope in nothing more than Jesus Christ himself? How would we know that that's your proclamation? Certainly it's something that you must have internally. But in our own denomination, we also say that needs to be a public proclamation. A a public profession of faith, if you will. So have you made that public profession of faith before God's people? It doesn't have to be here at Trinity. uh, Connecting yourself with a Bible-believing church that believes the gospel is by grace alone. Through faith alone, in Christ alone. So if that's you this morning, we would invite you to eat and to drink and to be reminded of this wonderful message of God's provision for us in Christ and also to boldly proclaim your desire to go out this week ahead and to trust and to believe these things that are true because after all, it's Jesus himself who said them. So let's pause for a moment and let's ask him to bless this table. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the Lord's Supper. 
We, we know that this is a, a means of grace. It's a, it's a means by which you help us, that you strengthen us. Certainly, you remind us of the gospel and the promises that are ours because of Christ's work on the cross. We cling to those promises and we proclaim that we indeed need cleansing. But we also, Father, cling to the promises that you give us in your word. That even though the wrongs of this world and the wrongs in our lives feel often so strong, you yet are the risen, ruling, reigning Lord God Almighty. We pray that you would use this means of grace, this this covenant meal to strengthen us as we remember these things, but also as the Holy Spirit is at work helping us to be strengthened in our faith this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.